is this Jesus? It is the question that Luke is seeking to answer for us as readers in his gospel. And if you would, turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We are in a second part as we are examining 5, 1 through Luke 6 through 16 as the gospel writer is attempting to identify who is this Jesus and how do we respond to him. The lines are going to be drawn in 5, 1 through 6, 16. This line, we're going to see a great division. We're going to see those that are going to follow, which are the disciples, and then you're going to see a group of religious leaders who are going to refuse to accept who he is. And so in, in the f- first part of 5, 1 through six sixteen, last week we looked at the call of Peter and his cohorts, his fishing partners in crime. And we looked at a miracle, which was the paralytic. This morning I want us to look at the calling of Levi and the man with the withered hand. So we are in chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, and we are going to start at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, and immediately we all say, boo, right? (laughs) And that's exactly what you should be thinking. His name was Levi. Now elsewhere, he's probably, we would know him as Matthew. He's one of the 12. Uh, It's not uncommon in the first century to have two names uh, throughout Scripture. In fact, Barnabas is really Joseph Barnabas. And, And so Levi is probably Levi Matthew, and he's sitting at the tax booth. Remember, we stated Capernaum sits on an international highway. It borders two territories. So it shouldn't surprise us that we have a tax collector here. But he's going to have a lucrative business as well because of the traffic coming through. And Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And he said to him, and he got up, that is Matthew or Levi, and followed him, leaving everything behind. It sounds a little like Peter, doesn't it? And James and John who left their fishing supplies. Then Levi gave a great banquet. The term here is really one that's very lavish. It was used of what Persian kings would do. Matthew's got the dough, he can afford it, and he's put on a huge spread, right? I mean, there is baklava everywhere in his house for Jesus. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with him. But the Pharisees, here they are, and the experts in the law complained to his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners? Now, they weren't identified as sinners earlier in the text, but our our dear sweet, the religious community is, is, is identifying them as such. In verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, we come to the text this morning. Can we just pause for a moment? Uh, The busyness of the week, Lord, there's uh, even as a a body of believers, we've we've had those undergo surgery. We think of the Williamsons who Tracy lost his brother this week. Uh, There's been some difficult things that we've had to encounter for those unspokens, etc., that are in this room. Father, we ask that you help us to set those aside and to focus on your word. Move Hafeditz out of the way and allow your word to speak 
in a powerful way as we know it will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see here that Levi is not one of those reputable professions in the north side of Sea of Galilee, such as a fisherman. He is a tax collector. The, prof the profession made a living from commissions. One scholar states it was an occupation which depended for success on suspicion, intrusion, harassment, and force. Something we might all relate to, right? Consequently, in rabbinic Jewish writings, tax collectors were equated with robbers. And they had a solution and what to do with the tax man, and that was, it was permissible to lie to them, according to Jewish teaching. <laughs> I would not recommend you do that to the IRS. But in that day, the religious ruler said, it's, it's okay to lie to a tax collector. They are worthless. They are scum. They're not a group that we want to associate with. And Jesus meets this tax collector, and what does he say? He says, follow me. It's that command to follow, which we'll see several times in Luke's gospel, is only given to disciples. It's never given to random to crowds. It's direct. And, and immediately as you read this, it should be shocking. It should be unexpected. And it's certainly controversial. Right? I mean, if you were Jesus, you would have expected him to say to the religious rulers, follow me. They're, they're devout. They know the law. They've got the Old Testament memorized, at least the first five books. They, they'd be great. But no, he says to this tax collector, follow me. One commentator states, it is a story about saving grace, for there is no penalties, no demands, except to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, by the way, you've been a louse, and here's some things that you're going to have to do in order to, to be my disciple. Does he? He said, no, we're going to go through a list, Matthew, and here's the people that, you're, that you have taken money from that you're going to have to pay back. Now, Zacchaeus, later we're going to meet, uh, demonstrates that he has followed Jesus because he is willing to forgive uh, or give back those he's cheated. But there's no strings attached. Follow me. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord and confesses his sin and da-da-da-da-da and does X, Y, and Z, then you can become a believer. No, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. And here's this beautiful scene nestled here in Luke's gospel. Again, the lines are being drawn in the sand of what it means to respond to this Jesus. And Levi, the tax collector, is called to follow. And it, the text tells us he leaves everything. Think about this for a minute. That's an extremely profound statement. He has a lucrative business. I mean, look, he, he can sponsor a great banquet, but did you see where they met? In the, in the homeowner's meeting house? No, it says they met in his house. The average size home in Palestine in the first century, there's no way you could have put more than about 10 people in the main room. This is a huge hacienda that he's able to accommodate such a crowd. It, it does beg the question for us as well, doesn't it? Why do we do what we do? Is it for a paycheck? Is your job for security? Or is your profession the best way that you might glorify the Lord and the talents and abilities he's given you? I would often ask my students, 
these 18 to 22 year olds, many of them had it all lined out what they're going to do. <laughs> You know, and I just smile as I hear they're going to go get a doctorate and they're going to make lots of money. You hear them walk through these things. And I always want, I would stop and ask, why? Why do you want that job? Why are you in this profession? Is it to glorify the Lord? Well, let's go back to Matthew. Matthew understood that his profession was hindering him. He gives it up. And, and, and again, think about all that he's, he's giving up. It's the paycheck. It's the security. It's the years that he has spent building this profession. And yet he says, the text tells us, he's willing to give it all up. Why? Because he understood what was in verse 32. Notice what verse 32 says. Jesus stated, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew understood all the money in the world, all the power that comes as a tax collector, this beautiful toll booth that I have established, none of it will do anything for me apart from Christ. And so he leaves it all behind. The text tells us, here it says, and he got up, verse 28. That is a loaded term. That Greek term appears several times in Luke's gospel. We saw it earlier when Peter and his cohorts get up. It's also used of the resurrection. And the idea is, I think it's, they've come into a new life, a new phase. And I think that's seen by him holding this banquet one commentator writes, holding the banquet confirms the change in Levi brought about through his encounter with Jesus. Levi did not abandon his wealth, but he put it at the service of Jesus and of his mission. And what is he doing? He's, he's calling people to Jesus. Come meet this one. And look who he invites. A bunch of louses, right? A bunch of tax collectors. And they're all sitting there. And what do the religious rulers do? They are appalled. Now, this is a little foreign to our world, but in the first century, purity was everything. Even in Jewish circles today, there are the more devout Orthodox Jews, there's, a such, there's rituals of purity and, and things that you must follow and, and who you eat with and what you eat, etc. And, and you look at this scene, several problems occur with an Orthodox Jew, a Pharisee in the first century, the dining tables would be considered unclean. The utensils were most likely improperly washed. Inappropriate cooking methods were employed. Who knows what you're eating, where that came from, right? That's a whole nother issue. And inappropriate dining companions were present at the table. It's, it's awful. I, I, I was trying to think, how would I equate this today I think it's similar to a nurse who takes her brown sack lunch. I don't know if you do that to to the, the to work to the hospital. And at lunch break, you go get your lunch and you go to a COVID patient's room and you you break out on their bed and have lunch. You go, oh, you would never do that. That's how horrific it is for a Pharisee to see Jesus whining and dining with these folks. It's horrific. You, you wouldn't do this. You've got to be kidding. And the text tells us, I love this, it says, well, it's, it's not a compliment, it says they complained. The Greek term is used in the translation of the Israelites, they mumbled and grumbled against the Lord. 
It's used several times in Exodus and in Numbers. It speaks of inappropriate behavior against a holy God. The Israelites in the Exodus grumbled in the absence of food. The religious rulers ironically grumble because they won't participate in eating of the food that's placed before them. But both are similar. Both the Israelites of old and the Pharisees are missing God's blessing, aren't they? They're sitting here and casting judgment and they're complaining. Now notice who they complain to, to Jesus. No, it says they complain to his disciples. You have to love that. I, I have to wonder, are they trying to, to, to create seeds of discord to undermine Jesus' ministry with those that have recently followed? Perhaps they're cowards. Maybe it's both. Uh, they don't want to face Jesus straight on. And, and you have to wonder, how did Jesus know that they were asking these questions? Did they ask it loud enough that Jesus could hear just to... Make sure everyone is hearing. Why would Jesus do this? And who knows? But Jesus hears it, and he's able to refute the Pharisaic teaching. He doesn't refute who is sitting at the table, does he? He, he says, your assessment is right. They are sinners. They are unclean. They are unholy. That's why I've come. Right? The text tells us. It reminds us of Luke chapter 4. Remember the, the sermon at Nazareth when Jesus stated, uh, you, you say to yourselves, physician, heal yourself. Or you say to me, physician, heal yourself. And, and, and we talked about how I think he is saying to that crowd, that congregation at Nazareth, you need healing and you've missed it. And I, the same idea is here. They need healing and technically you do as well. You need your sins forgiven. And the object of Jesus' mission is repentance. Luke is the only gospel writer that will use that term, repentance, which refers to a shift in mindset. And here you have this tax collector who would appear, humanly speaking, has it all together. Oh yeah, the, the people don't like him, but if they had their opportunity, they would take his job too, <laughs> most likely. Uh, you know, and he's despised, and yet he forsakes all of this, and there's a shift in his mindset to know this is the one who can forgive sin. Well, it serves as a contrast. Turn to chapter 6. I know we're skipping some scenes here in the text, but I want you to see this contrast because this is the last episode of Jesus teaching into this section, and it draws a, a, a distinction between those who do follow, like Levi, and those who do not. And in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, on another Sabbath, now this is key, it springs back to what is seen, the text we just skipped, which is the issue of Sabbath, we'll, we'll get to in a minute. And Jesus entered the synagogue, here we go again, and was teaching. Now a man was there whose right hand was withered. Dr. Luke, our author, tells us, and he's the only gospel writer that mentions it's his right hand, which probably indicates our man is right-handed and this has really been a bummer for him, right? The experts in the law, here they are, dun, 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 and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see what they could learn? No, to see if they could, if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. 
But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, get up and stand here. So he arose and stood there. Then Jesus said to him, I ask you, says to the crowd, the religious rulers, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man did so and his hand was restored. Now watch this. Here's the line in the sand. But they were filled with mindless rage. These are the religious rulers. They're the frozen chosen, which has more meaning today than ever. <laughs> and, and says, they began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. Mark's parallel account in his gospel tells us that the Pharisees joined forces with the Herodians to take out Jesus. And you go, well, I, I don't know who those groups are. Let's put it this way. It would, be, it would be like Black Panthers and the KKK coming together to fight a cause. The Herodians were anti-religious, very pro-King Herod. The Pharisees were anti-Herod, very religious, and they came together to fight a common enemy, which is Jesus. And, and Mark goes on to state and how they might destroy Jesus. So the line has been drawn. You've got folks like Levi who are responding, but then you have these religious rulers who are seeking how they might destroy Jesus. The Sabbath is somewhat like our Sundays. I spent five years in Dallas and on Sundays, you didn't see anyone on the roads. They were either in church or in bed, but you didn't go out and socialize because it was Sunday. Uh, my landlady I spent a few years with in, in Aberdeen, uh, she was a Sabbatarian. I mean, you couldn't work on, you couldn't do anything on Sunday. I mean, it was you and God. Well, this is similar. Sabbath for the Jew is on Saturday, and it's still observed even today. I warn our folks that we take tours with, don't get in the Shabbat elevator, because if you do, it stops at every floor, because apparently it's working if it skips a floor. I don't know. Right? So you get the idea, and, and, and for the first century Jew, not only was there purity laws, but there were laws about the Sabbath and how it should be handled. In fact, there were 39 regulations in rabbinic literature. I thought you might enjoy a few. This is from the Mishnah, codified Jewish law, written about 250 AD. But it says, on the Sabbath, listen to this, the categories of acts or labors prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. He who sows, plows, reaps, binds, sheaves, winnows, selects crops, grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes. He who shears wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins it, weaves it, makes two loops, weaves two threads. You get the idea. And on it goes. In fact, an entire section of the Mishnah is on rules and regulations concerning the Sabbath. Jesus comes on the scene, and this is one of the tests that they're going to put before him. How is he going to handle the Sabbath? What's he going to do here? Right? And, and the trap has been set. It's clear. In fact, I can't want, you can't help but wonder if they haven't dragged this man in to the synagogue in hopes of trapping Jesus. They're not there to learn. Remember, we're in the Sabbath, and he, or in the synagogue, and he's teaching. They're not there to learn from Jesus. They're not there to witness another miracle. No, 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 no. They're seeking how they can deliver him up. How they can level the charges. And I love who is truly in control here, isn't it? 
Notice what verse 8 says, but Jesus knew their thoughts. They thought they had pulled a fast one. Jesus knows. The religious rulers had turned this man into a spectacle. And I I can't help but wonder if that's why Jesus didn't say to the weathered man, hey, come over here. Stand by me. Get away from those guys. (laughs) Uh, I'll use you as an object lesson, but just come over here. Jesus' question to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? They know this. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke says, the intent of the Sabbath was to prevent people from working several consecutive days without rest, to provide time for rejuvenation and to give time to contemplate God. Certainly it was never intended to prevent one from doing good. And the religious rulers of the day had missed that. And in fact, the only time that you could heal on the Sabbath, if it was a life and death issue, a withered hand is not a life and death issue. They knew the answer to Jesus' question, didn't they, in verse 9. And I love what Jesus does. He gives the stare, right? It says, he looked around at them all. I love it. I'm in charge. (laughs) I see you. You've not pulled a fast one. And so he says to the man, be healed. Ironically, those spiritual leaders, there's no rejoicing over the miracle, is there? (laughs) There's no gratitude for the lesson that has been learned or the rejoicing that they could participate in restoring and giving, uh, restoring the man's hand. No. The text tells us they respond with mindless rage. The term denotes a fury. It it, it speaks of insanity. The term is used later in 2 Timothy to refer to the two magicians who opposed Moses. And Paul writes in that text that they, those False teachers, those in our world who oppose Moses also oppose the truth in mindless rage. Such individuals, Paul writes, have corrupted the minds and are disqualified regarding the faith. These religious rulers who should have known better are breaking out in mindless rage. These self-righteous shepherds. (laughs) The problem with self-righteousness. I I wrote a few things down here. Number one, it disregards the gravity of our own sin. Doesn't it? As noted by the Puritan John Owen, there are no examples of God delivering any people out of their distress when they have refused to be reformed and humbled or to turn to him even though he had supplied all the means of grace necessary for humiliation, reformation, and turning. The religious rulers and their smugness had forgotten that they too were sinners. That they too need a savior. And self-righteousness is very disillusioning. It can miss the mark. Nearly 15 years ago, I wrote this. I want to say that up front. It was a recipe for the church of today. I thought it's apropos, I want to read it. It's the recipe again for the church of today. Move over, Martha Stewart. We now have a new recipe for the church. This new concoction will assist any evangelical church to be relevant in a contemporary world. 
This recipe still calls for several common ingredients such as prayer, the Bible, and community. Do note that the amount of Bible has been lessened. This recipe, however, does eliminate doctrine. This will prevent the dryness often associated with the old fundamentalist recipes. In addition, this new recipe contains an exciting new ingredient. The key component which will make the dish all the more palatable is a small dose of sin. A little cursing and embracement of alternative lifestyles, even a few tipsy evenings will assist your church in communicating to this world. In fact, the more your recipe resembles the world, the more desirable it will be. The new recipe can be found in several popular evangelical writings. Oh, be sure to disregard the warning label which reads, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. <laughs> A little cheeky, but you get the idea. The point of the recipe is that I fear that today the church has not taken sin serious enough. And I stand just as guilty. When have you mourned the loss of aborted children? When have you mourned the loss of the blurring of gender? When have you mourned the loss of sexual deviance in our society? The sad part is the church can easily take on its culture. Whether we're making it more palatable, our faith to the world, or it's under the banner of love, we need to be careful we are not compromising the gospel and missing our own sin. <laughs> the religious rulers sat in their holy huddle as they watched Jesus operate, and they missed the point that they, like Levi, are no better. They need forgiveness of sin. But self-righteousness doesn't just disregard the gravity of our own sin. It fails to recognize the Lord and his work on earth. Think about this. Matthew and his friends had the opportunity to dine with Jesus. They had the opportunity to experience and understand what it means to be freed from sin. Can you imagine? Opportunity to dine with Jesus? the religious rulers missed it. And self-righteousness not only fails to recognize the Lord, but it oppresses those that are in need. They weren't concerned about Levi. Those religious rulers had already condemned him for being a tax collector. They weren't concerned about the withered hand that this man had suffered with all his life. They were more concerned about trapping Jesus. And self-righteousness also ensures that an individual will experience the wrath of God. Even in their self-righteousness, they have missed what it's like to stand before a holy God. The calling of Levi is the object lesson in the synagogue, to the object lesson in the synagogue, is identifying who truly is the Lord. And so it begs several questions there in your notes or statements. First of all, a relationship with Jesus begins with a humble recognition of one's sin. Charles Spurgeon writes, when men talk of a little hell, 
it is because they have only a little thought of sin and believe in a little Savior. It's all a little together. But when you have a great sense of sin, you want a great Savior and feel that if you do not have him, you will fall into great destruction. A relationship with Jesus is first beginning with a humble recognition we are a sinner. Second Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never come to a recognition of who Jesus is. Oh, you've, you've maybe followed the crowd to church. You've done the church thing. <laughs> Or perhaps you haven't, and you're sitting here, yeah, I don't know a lot about this, Jesus. Bend your knee. He is the one who forgives this holy God who says, I am here. The call to follow Jesus, another point from this text, the call to follow Jesus is an abandonment of all the world affords us. Matthew left everything. Peter left everything on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The call to follow Jesus, what does the Lord state? If you want to follow me, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after. Many of you are familiar with Jim Elliott, the missionary, one of five, who died. They were killed in their attempts to share the gospel with the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And he has this great quote. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Matthew's not taken the toll booth into eternity. He's not taken the resources that he has <laughs> frauded from the people into eternity. Is he? nor the religious rulers taking all their learning and all their books into eternity either. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This text calls for a humble recognition of our sin, an abandonment of this world, and one more thing that I see in the text, and that is a proper assessment of one's life results in a recognition of Christ's amazing gift. In 1 Peter 1, uh, as I mentioned last week, Peter is, 1 Peter is known as the epistle of grace, and I love it. This guy who's struggled, he's denied Jesus, etc., etc. He writes, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. Isn't that great? Peter understood. One of these days, we'll sit down with Levi. I can't wait to hear the stories and what it was like to have been there at that meal that he had hosted to understand what it means to bask in God's forgiveness. It's interesting, meals, dinners, my Hoosier accent, meals, meals, I can't distinguish, you'll figure it out, right? Dinners, suppers, are common in the Gospel of Luke. He loves to focus on these. 
One scholar writes, of all the means by which Jesus would have chosen to be remembered, he chose to be remembered by a meal. When we come to communion, it, it is, it is a, a dinner in a sense. It is a meal. The scholar goes on to write, what he considered memorable and characteristic his ministry was his table fellowship. The meal, one of humankind's most basic and common practices, was transformed by Jesus on occasion of a divine encounter. It was in the sharing of food and drink that he invited his companions to share in the grace of God. The quintessential essence of Jesus' redemptive mission was revealed in eating with sinners, repentant and unrepentant alike. So this morning we come to the table and you should have one of these cups slash bread. The bread is at the bottom. Make sure you do it correctly. You'll be baptized as well. Um, the communion table is not to be taken lightly. If, if like Levi, we understand what God has done, then we recognize what heights he had to go for us. These elements are designed for those who know Jesus as their savior. If you've not accepted him as your savior, that's the first step you need to do because this is to remember what Christ has done for us. But secondly, these elements are designed for those who are seeking to love the Lord and his neighbor. In one of the earliest writings outside of the New Testament in the church, it's called the Didache, or the, the teachings. This writing, which is late first century, states, but every Lord's day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having for, uh, asked forgiveness for your sins. Let there be no odds with your fellow brother. Come together united so that your sacrifice may not be profaned. It really bases on 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? Because Paul says we are not to have known sin coming to this table. So let's spend a few moments reflecting on what it means that we have been forgiven. And perhaps there's some sins as a believer, as a one who's following after him, you need to lay at Jesus' feet this morning and say, yeah, I've grumbled like the Pharisees. I've basked in some self-righteousness this week. Whatever the case, let's just spend some time in prayer and then we'll take of these elements. different than the Levi. We too have not sought after you. It was you who reached in time and space and called us. 
for those this morning who know your son as their savior, we recognize it's because of your grace and your mercy. Now, Lord, living the Christian life is not always easy. There's those besetting sins. There's the past that sometimes haunts. There's the quick tongue. There's the self-righteous attitudes. There's the grumbling and complaining. Lord, forgive us. We are a sinful lot. <laughs> it's easy to cast judgment on those religious rulers, but so oftentimes we see those same characteristics in our own life. Seeking to run ahead of you, seeking to tell you how things are gonna be accomplished. And Lord, forgive us. Thank you for another reminder this morning through communion of the sacrifice that was made for us. We thank you. We praise you. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples. So to him, he took that bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way, he also took the cup after the dinner, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to come dine with us. Thank you for taking on human form and dwelling among us, but oh, thank you for the sacrifice at the cross. Thank you for paying the debt that we owed. Thank you for the restoration you can give through repentance of sin. And thank you through the victory we have because your son is no longer in a grave. Indeed, 